about to say today. Uh, I think, first off, I want to say that this is your typical Easter passage, right? This is the, the passage that for years and years and years, um, and it should be, the one that is spoken about on Easter Sunday. And typically, those messages are geared towards, um, you know, the believers, but they're also geared towards those that are questioning whether or not it's real so they can try to win others over to the faith. And I, I think that's great. I know leading up to Easter Sunday, I, I heard a lot of pastor friends of mine saying, I got to write the right message to try and get the, the creasters over, you know, a creaster, a person who just comes at Christmas and Easter, and I got to win them over and stuff like that. So I think two things are important here, and that's one, we're the underground, so we all come to this passage believing in Jesus. And so I'm not trying to convince anybody in this audience that um, this is real and you need to believe it. We come in of the mindset that we're all missionaries and we believe this already. Um, And second, it's um, three weeks past Easter anyway, so there's other points of view in this scripture that I think are really, really uh, important for us to see because they're part of the communal value of this entire experience we call resurrection. And and they kind of get overshadowed by the whole, you know, Jesus rising thing. And Joseph is one of them. Um, Joseph is the man, as far as I'm concerned. Studying this passage for the last few weeks, I just realized how big of a stand he took. Do you realize that they could easily call this passage the death of Joseph? Because his life was wrecked. Think about it. Think about just today in modern day Turkey or uh, Iraq or countries like that. If you became a Christian, you'd be killed in a lot of those countries. These people just killed Christ. The Jews did not want Christians, right? And Joseph, one of them, one of them actually goes to an enemy, by the way, Pontius Pilate, and says, may I have the body? Which Pontius Pilate has to even check that he's dead because it happened so soon. But his enemy, and says, I would like the body. Who would go to, would you go to your enemy and make a stand? Like, think about it. He's going to Pontius Pilate. With Pontius Pilate's going to be like, why are you part of this group that just killed the guy wanting the body? He probably, to cover his own butt, went to those who did kill Jesus and said, do you know that one of your own is doing this? Do you realize that like, one of your own is like out there personally taking the body off the cross and wrapping it and treating it like it's special when most people crucified are thrown over into the pit with the unnamed bodies? This really kind of looks bad for you guys. You do know that, right? So his life was, was wrecked. There's no way that like he went to the next city council meeting and nobody didn't bring up the fact that he got the body down, especially after it was uh, the fact that it was disappeared. He was done. He must, have ama- he must have amassed a certain amount of fortune because he had his own personal tomb that had never been used before. So he was doing okay. He was a man of upright standing within the community, a man who knew scripture He knew he'd studied the ancient text, it says. And yet he goes and gets the body down. I I just think that it's amazing that the guy that was just waiting for the kingdom, not even a believer, makes a stand like that when the so-called believers run and hide. 
It actually reminds me of a lot of Christians today. You know, those that toot the horn, the right-wing Christian is like, oh, yeah, I'm Christian, Christian, Christian. But then when the chips come down to make a moral stand and do what's right, we see non-Christians making the stand for us. The, the, the non-Christian's like, I, I'm not really a believer, but I, I don't think that we should be uh, having these, you know, black men get shot and no trials being done adequately. Somebody should probably stand in and do something. But yet we don't have any major white Christians standing up and doing anything. We're not going to risk our fortune and our amassed wealth. We're not going to risk our security for something because you are. When you take a stand for something that is right, just the fact that you have to take a stand means that it's going to cost you something. And on that day, Joseph most certainly paid a price. He most certainly, um, his life was never, never the same after that. And I think that's just, um, I think that's just powerful. You got to wonder if Joseph was sitting there and uh, watching this whole, un, you know, event unfold. And as he's doing it, you know, you got to wonder if he's not watching it happen. And as a guy who's you know, studied the ancient text, he's not thinking of Isaiah 53, and he's thinking of the words that Isaiah prophesied where he's saying, surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. You wonder if Joseph was thinking of that. So he went into that he went into that day as waiting for the kingdom, but I think he came out of that day in the kingdom, in the kingdom. You know, thinking of just Easter messages, I had, uh, I spent Easter Sunday this year with some good friends, and, and I, I talked to um, one of my friends, and I asked him, he had went to church that, smor- that morning, and I had asked him how the service was. And uh, he said, yeah, it was good, you know, I had all the bells and whistles and everything, it was good, you know. And I know he's not typically a, you know, guy who goes to church or whatever, and I asked him, you know, what, do you, what did you think about it? It was, oh, yeah, it was, you know, he's a good speaker, and the guy's, you know, whatever. I'm not asking you that, what did you think about, what did you think about the message? So I, I'll be honest with you, I know you're a pastor, but I just kind of disagree with the message, you know, it's, I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, hey, that whole message that yeah, I got to believe exactly like that guy up there speaking or I'm going to hell. He's like, I just, that doesn't seem very loving to me. And I'm like, no. He's like, and I'm like, what do you mean? Elaborate. And he's like, well, you know, basically the gist of the message is believe these, these ways that I'm telling you things or, or you're going to, God's going to take you to hell. And, and I, I have to wonder, like, what message is being spoken now, granted, it's one man's opinion. Maybe he didn't hear the message right, but it's not the first time that I've heard that that's the message people get. What is the resurrection message? It's certainly not that God sends his son to be crucified for our sins, and you either look at it the right way or you too will be going to hell. I don't think that that's the message. Somehow I think that that's, there's something lost in that translation I think there's something lost in the way that 
uh, society as a whole, like, hears our message? What are we speaking? So what do we have to believe about the resurrection, right? Either you've heard it or you haven't heard the message of resurrection. And if you have, what does that story mean to you? Is it a fairy tale? Is it unbelievable? Is it that you're hoping it doesn't really matter and you don't have to ever make a stance one way or the other on it? That it's a fact that you believe it. Is it something that you're supposed to believe and so you say you do, hoping that one day you finally do? Is, is that how we look at the resurrection? You know, kind of like the gentleman over there said, he said, I've been following God for 38 years and I'm still not sure exactly what it is, right? And I think that that should be what our, our message is, is that we're still discovering who God is and what it means in our life. I think if you believe the message of the resurrection, you will realize that it will reflect in your choices, your decisions, your relationships, your outlook on life. There's this resurrection principle that I think is so important that for me, I, I try to apply it. It's that this principle that you'll never die and that nothing that is dead has to stay dead. Relationships, ideas, hopes, lives, they don't have to stay dead. Because if you don't believe that, doing ministry is really, really difficult. It's really difficult. So like I said, so Lucas asked me to share stories, and I was like, I, I literally worked on this, on this message for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I'm probably going to say this morning what I thought of today. So I <laughs> spent a lot of time doing that. But I, I, I was crying out to God this morning, and I'm like, God, I don't, I don't know what stories to tell. I don't know. You got to help me. And I was out walking, and I came back, and I realized I had a, a, someone I messaged about coming to this uh, service this morning. He sent me a long Facebook message, and I was like, I started reading it, and I was like, I'm going to share that. That's actually good. Thanks, God. So um, I got this message from a guy that was uh, in TI in, like, year one. His name is David Mulheron. He was... Uh, He's a great guy, and um, I haven't seen him in years. I think the last time I seen him, he came to town to help out with one of our events. And, but he sent me this message this morning, and I just wanted to share it with you because I think it is a, a, a good resurrection story. Good morning, George, from the Keys. He's in Florida Keys. I'm awake and ready to see you online this morning. So apparently streaming, if you are, David, here's to you. It says, I need an old friend and mentor in my life right now. I, I miss everyone at the underground. What a huge impact you, Will Barrett, Matt Wallace, and all the guys in TI had on my life. It's only been God's grace that I met you. I literally have no idea where I would be and definitely would not have the love for my Savior if not for TI and the rest of the less fortunate 
battered, lost, and beaten men I've met through this congregation. I would still be all of the above, beaten, battered, lost, if it were not for you guys. And I owe that all to you, and it's a big thank you for what may not seem like a big deal to you, but it was my saving grace. I'm sure I speak for many others when I say that you and T.I. are an inspiration to the rest of us broken men and only hope that when judgment day comes from our Lord that I will be standing with my head high and no regrets and somewhere near you and the other brothers from T.I. Again, thank you, and I love you. By the way, I live in Iomarada on a 52-foot houseboat, and I'm living a very simple life and loving it. Working on a catamaran and I'm about three weeks away from getting my captain's license. Thank you guys from everything. I thought that was cool. I thought that was really great to like get that message in the moment of like waiting to know like what is the story to tell. And, and I think it's interesting. It's like when we live out of this resurrection principle, we don't even really know half the time when people around us are affected by us. I know for me, you know, running the Timothy Initiative for the past 10 years, a lot of times when guys leave, it's not on good terms. And it's great that they can leave and, and try to discover and, and walk with Jesus on their own and then recognize that the things that we try to instill in them and show them are the things that will lead them to a different life, that will lead them to a new life. And it's great to be able to hear, you know, back from somebody that, like, honestly, when he left, I would never imagine I'd be receiving that message from him today. I just think that's really great. Um, so we look at this whole story of the resurrection. You got Joseph, you got the women, right? So you got the women who are basically with Jesus. They follow him. They support him. They're with him from the beginning of his ministry. They're with him through the end. They're with him at the crucifixion, the resurrection. They will be with him at the ascension. These women that are just there witnessing everything for us. And of course, you got, you know, the disciples that are, you know, in and out of doing the right things. You got the, the angels or the men, depending on what you want to call them, that deliver the message he has risen. You know, and you got Pontius Pilate. You have all this happening. And I, and I look at it, and I keep saying communal. And what I discovered is you can't have a resurrection story, not just here, but anywhere, without witnesses, right? And you can't have a resurrection story without someone that delivers the message that he has risen. You can't have resurrection story without a few guys that are scratching their head wondering, like, what the heck is happening? It's, it's this call to play a part in a resurrection story. Who's, whose resurrection story are you playing a part in, and what part are you playing? Are you going to be the Joseph that goes and has to defend this person and, and do something that is maybe going to put you on the outs, but... They need your help. They need your influence. They need what it is that you have. Or is it someone that you just need to stand back and, and witness all that's happening? Um, see their life. 
I got this guy that's um, part of TI, and his name is John Tree. His actual name is John Hoax, but we call him John Tree because he's tall and looks like a tree. And um, he, he's got a tattoo on his side that says 8-1-Tree. He said I could share that, actually. Actually, he didn't say I could share that last part. I'm sorry, you didn't hear that. Erase that from the, erase that from the tape, as Brian would say. Um, but perfect example of just being someone that I can sit back and, and witness his life and all the twists and turns that it's taken. And, and it's just been, if you really get, uh, the, if God puts you in somebody's life for you to witness them, it's an honor and a privilege um, often a roller coaster ride, but it's just uh, amazing to see what God can do. You know, Tree came in to us, um, you know, broke in and, and whatever, but he came in in, a, in kind of a weird day because I have a tendency in the past, I've, I'm a new man, I don't do this anymore, but I used to have a little bit of a temper and I used to be a little bit um, colorful with my language and... Uh, little outspoken about things, and one morning it was devotional, and all the TI guys were there, and I'm assuming everybody knows what that is. TI is a ministry for broken men. Typically, we work with men coming out of addiction. We have three homes. We house about, well, we have four homes now. We house about 35 to 40 men. We've been around for 10 years, and um, yeah, that's us. Anyway, we, um, one morning I was there, and um, we went through this stretch of time where a bunch of guys had somehow gotten into our ranks and just were not the right fit for us. Because with TI, we try to take only the most broken of men. We only want the guy that has no help, hope anywhere else. We don't want the guy that just thinks he needs a job. We don't want the guy that doesn't think he has a problem. We don't even want the guy that has a lot of family and friends waiting for him. We want the guy that is like, I got nothing. Nothing. And somehow, some guys had gotten in lying through the orientation process, and so they're there for like three weeks, and they're asking questions like, when do I get to go see my girlfriend, and when do I get to go get a job and have a cell phone, and all these things that we blatantly do not allow. And so one morning, I just lost it, and I just, I can't even give the talk because of the words I use. So I said, basically, listen, if somehow you got in here and you lied, then you need to leave, because... We only want people that basically are willing to give a lifetime commitment to this ministry, that your life is willing to commit to being here for the rest of it, that you're willing to be part of what we do, sacrificing everything, uh, stepping away from anything that you thought you wanted to do. Your life is now this ministry, and if you're not ready to do that, and if you're not ready to commit to not having a job for years, to not having a cell phone for years, to not having a girlfriend for years, then you need to go. And I walked out of the room and slammed the door. So I um, honestly was just being just me, but I was just being, you know, a little bit over the top. Obviously, I didn't necessarily mean all the things I said, but I, I just said them. Anyway, so that night I get to the guy's house and um, Tree goes, hey, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah, sure. And so I go over my, yeah, what's going on? He goes, I'm in. I go, you're in where? 
He goes, I forgot about it. I'm like, in where? He goes, here. I go, yeah, that's great. Yeah, okay, good. He goes, no, you asked us to think about the commitment. I'm in to the commitment. I go, oh, that? You really? <laughs> oh, okay. Awesome. I went back to the other leaders, and I'm like, see, that's what we do from now on. This will make our lives so much easier. That's the commitment. Yeah. It's, think about it. It's kind of like hedging your bet. You know, you get that guy, and you're like, you know, you don't have to worry about much. You're like, this is what we're doing. Anyway, um, but that's how he came into the ministry. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you something. If, you, if you're a leader, it's something special about leading a guy or girl, anyone, to Christ, literally for the first time, and, and discipling them along the way. And within years, they're able to sit you down and you receive wisdom from them. Like, not like you're just being polite, but like you're literally like, this guy has something. He can speak into my life. And that's tree. It's, it's him. He's a guy that if he asks to talk to me because he wants to say something to me, I literally want to hear what he has to say. And there's something very, very special about that. But what's great about his time in us has been watching Jesus actually speak into his life, like actually speak into his life. Now, Tree was adopted, um, and he was adopted in what they call a closed adoption, and so he had no idea who his parents were or anything about his life. He was adopted into a wonderful, really great family. His father, you know, um, developed Pop-Tarts. He introduced them to the world. Actually, that's not true. I always tell people that, but he just worked on a Pop-Tart thing, but I love Pop-Tarts, so it sticks out in my head. Um, it's going to stick out in yours, too, trust me. You're going to be a tree. Pop-Tarts, got it. Um, anyway, so he was raised by this really great family, but um, I just know how this goes with men and adoption and everything, and um, one day we were at his house, and I was, I'll never forget it, but I was like standing on the pool deck, and he was down on the ground, which is good because I'm short and he's super tall, so I was actually seeing eye to eye with him. But um, I just felt like God saying to me that he had unresolved feelings that needed to be dealt with about his adoption, about being adopted into God's family and not fully receiving that more or less, you know, and I remember sitting there and like, I don't want to say this. It was like a Saturday afternoon. It was sunny out. Everything was going great. I knew it was one of those things that you say and it's like, there's, it's heavy. You don't just say it in passing. So I sat there and I'm like, oh man. So God wants me to tell you that he doesn't feel like you've dealt with your whole adoption thing. And he goes, yeah, I have. I'm like, okay, well, good. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Then I felt like God saying, that's not what I meant. You need to do more. I'm like, oh. So <laughs> I don't think you have. I think you, you need to spend some time like really asking God and praying about whatever is in you because I think it's, re it's preventing you from having this relationship with God. And he didn't answer right away. And I'm like, okay, either I just pissed him off or... Then I realized he was crying, and I'm like, uh, it's one of those times when you're like, oh, thank, it is Jesus. Okay, good. It's not me. <laughs> but 
Then you start to get all nervous. You're like, oh, man, I hope I can hear the rest of what Jesus says. Uh, no, I'm going to screw this up. I don't, I'm not the kind. I don't go around saying, I have a word for the Lord for you. I don't do that, believe it or not, but I don't. So that's not typically my flow. I, I wish it was. I, it's just not. I mean, obviously you could just say that, but I mean, I wish I actually heard that, not just one of the people that went around saying it. Anyways, hold their topic. That's my ADD. Anyways, so... You know, just really, you know, we kind of talk through some times, and, and I'm like, this is kind of, you know, I recommend maybe spending some time in prayer about this, that, the other, and, and it was really a good, more, it was a good afternoon, it was whatever, and I did what all cowardly leaders will do. I avoided the topic and didn't bring it back up um, for a long time. <laughs> it's just, it kind of went away. I thought, felt like I'd done my part. That was good. Um, and one day we're at a Bible study and all of a sudden he starts talking about how, I don't know if we were at a Bible study or a leaders meeting, but he starts talking about how he's really been exploring his adoption thoughts and just really what God's been doing in him. And it's been leading him to this, just this really like deeper place with the Lord. And, and I'm just like, wow, this is awesome because witnessing what God is of the world is doing in his life and speaking on his behalf. And he goes, hands up, and check this out. So we're talking about a guy that six months ago thought the whole thing with his adoption was done, wasn't ever going to think about it again. It was behind him. Now he felt like he needed to try and find his family. He went on that ancestry thing and Lots of people do that. I did it. I didn't find anybody. I didn't, you know, I wasn't anything I thought I was. It was a complete, you know, disaster. Anyways, um, he actually goes on there, right away finds his sister. Finds out who his dad was. Finds his cousins. Check this out. So we go on a mission trip a few months back to Houston. Guess where his sister lives? Not in Houston, but she lived close. <laughs> So, so she, she drove four hours, and he met his sister. He's got pictures of his family. Now, how does this apply to what I'm talking about today? Because this is the resurrection principle that he now has this whole new, like, view and hope in God, because God is number one. He's like interacted on his behalf to him directly. He has now like, he, he has this whole new outlook. That like when something is painful in your life, you don't just have to shut it down and lock it up and throw away the key. Because that's what he taught himself to do. I don't want to deal with that. Throw it away. And so he, he didn't have to do that. And now, think about how this plays out over, over, he's now a leader, and he can share this with other people. He can take other people through this, because, man, I don't know if you're adopted or not adopted, but I'm telling you, man, that people that are adopted, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult for people that had abusive parents. It's difficult for people that had no parents. It's, everybody has their own thing, but this, that's one that is difficult. And so to be able to walk other men through that now is this, it's just amazing. 
And that's part of just being able to, to witness another person's life, right? I don't know, man. I just think that, I just think that it's just, you know, Jesus goes in that tomb, right? He gets put in the tomb by Joseph. And you know what I found out about tombs? Very interesting thing for me because I always wondered when they would say that Jesus was put into a tomb and um, there was a stone rolled away and it was a tomb for this guy, I would try to picture in my head how, much, how many tombs could there be for people, right? If that's like their place, they, you'd be wondering that too? Yeah. It's like, no, seriously, look how, look how many, if we all had a tomb, right? And like we had our own six foot by six foot tomb, that's like a prison cell for one. And, you know, where, how much space would that take? Where would all these tombs be cut into walls? It didn't make any sense to me. And then I was like, why do they have a, in a tomb, you always see where they said they found Jesus's, you know, the, the linens wrapped up and set down on, a, on the bench. I'm like, man, it's a really big tomb. Like, maybe a hole they could put a body in. But why, this really big, I don't get it. What turns out that a tomb is only the first place that the body goes. Now, you may all know this, and I'm going to look really stupid now, but I did not know this, that the tomb, yeah, no, they didn't know it either. Good. See, all right, I feel like I'm doing my job up here. So the body goes in there, and it stays in there for a year. And then they come back, and they collect the bones, and then it's the bones that they take away and, and do what they're going to do with so it's actually just a place where the body can go and kind of decompose in, a, in an environment where it's safe and respectful. That's why it says that the tomb uh, um, it had never been used. I also wondered that. I'm like, what do you mean it's never been used? Yeah, there's nobody in it. I get it, right? We're going to put Jesus in there with another body? That's kind of, that's not very good. Um, anyway, but it had never been used. So the body goes in there, and that's where it sits for a year, which is also why, which now it made sense that Brian a, a few weeks ago or whatever said, that's why when the passage says, let the dead bury their dead, and he was like, I can't go with you right now, Jesus, I got to bury my father or whatever. It's be, meaning you got to wait a year till the body decomposes and then I take the bones and I bury them. Now it makes sense. I'm like, okay, got that now. All right, now I get it. I also wondered like, why would they make a stone roll away for a thing that they're going to not go back in, right? Didn't you guys, ever, anybody wonder that? I know these guys over here did, but I did. You did too? Exactly. See, bam, doing my job. I'm teaching away up here. So it's so they could go in and out. All right. It makes sense now. We're all, we're all on the same page now. My point is the witnesses, sometimes they, we need to be able to go into a place. We need that tomb-like uh, experience where we can go in with those that we're walking with. And I, and I just like that, that kind of image of, um, for me, it's TI and guys come in and get cut off from the world and from other things. And it's in our experience, it's sort of like a, a tomb where we can come together and, and finalize what the Lord is doing. So I just really, I kind of like that picture. And plus, I just explained a tomb to all of you. So I feel pretty good about myself right about now. Um, now, the Joseph thing, where he is this uh, um, kind of um, speaking Jesus in a way, and it got me thinking, like, um, why, you know, we don't do that more, where we bring Jesus into places they don't want to hear it. 
And I thought about this conference that I went to back in 2009. And uh, Brian, me, I think Will Barrett, Matt Wallace, a few of us went to this conference um, at this church over in St. Pete. And back in those days, it was, uh, there was this flow of church called emergent churches. I don't know, they probably are still out there, but you don't hear it as much. But back then, you used to hear it a lot. Um, back in those days, they used to say, you know, emergent churches are kind of their own flow. And a lot of times, underground would get mentioned in that. And Brian would be like, no, we are not an emergent church. Just, we're not. I and so, they kind of, you know, then the guests, the, the people running the place would kind of say, in your seminar, don't really talk about Jesus. You can talk about all the things that he does and talk about, like, you know, the social justices and everything. But he's kind of, we don't want to offend anybody or whatever. And I'm like, what? This is, like, really happening? So anyway, Brian goes and does his seminar. We do ours, whatever. We all come back together at lunch. And I was like, what happened with you? How'd your seminar go? And Brian goes, I got everybody in there. I shut the door. I said, we're going to talk about Jesus. <laughs> so I don't really know. Well, if you don't want to hear it, we're talking about Jesus in this room. So... And like literally shut the door and I was like, yeah, it was funny. And I think I got asked to leave my seminar because I kept trying to get the guy to say the name of Jesus. And it was just, it was just, <laughs> say his name, you know, come on. It was pretty funny. Um, but at the time, man, you know, it wasn't funny because people thought the underground was emerging. I'm like, this is not good. So I remember um, talking to Brian, I'm like, how how can they do this? And he's like, it's in scripture, man. He's like, in scripture, it says, you know, that one day there will be a remnant of those that hold true, a small amount of people that hold true to what is right, to what is Jesus, to what is orthodox. He goes, this is what you're seeing is how that happens, how mainline church, how mainline people can all of a sudden take Jesus more and more out of the equation because they don't want to offend anybody. They want to make sure everybody's included. I'm not saying that God want, doesn't want to be inclusive, but he, it is about Jesus. You know, it is about Jesus. That night, back then, the underground used to do a Saturday night service, and um, Brian was like, be at the service tonight. I'm like, okay, you know, we told all of us, be there. We got there. Brian was in tears. I've never to this day seen him preach a message like this. He was just like, hardcore crying, just like we cannot ever drift away from the truth that is in Jesus. As an organization, we need to shut our doors before what we need to do to stay alive is not say the name of Jesus. We just can never get to that place. And I remember just being like totally like motivated and just inspired and just in awe at the same time that people are out there that don't want to say the name of Jesus. And you can't have the resurrection without Jesus. Um, so when we look at a person who becomes resurrected, right, and we look at Jesus in their life, and we look at once they're resurrected, does their life just continue on and not have any issues? Is it, is it just this life that... Um, no worries, no fears, because they were once dead and gone, and now they're resurrected. 
And I think our job as witnesses sometimes is to, to remind them that no, no, that, that's not necessarily the case. Similar a story with, uh, I had a story with my guy, Mike Malpiti, which most people know Mike. He's outspoken, um, high energy. Um, he's a leader in TI. He's a great guy. He's actually in our videos. Um, he's kind of a famous person in some, ter- in some groups. Usually it's, own, it's his own house, but um, <laughs> great guy, one of my best friends, love him to death. Um, but the other day we went out to lunch, and in lunch he sits down and he's not looking like Mike. He's not looking confident. He's not looking uh, happy. He's, he's just like, he's looking, quite frankly, stressed. And he's got his head like this. He's like, man, I'm having anxiety. And I was like, what, what's, I, we were just going to lunch. I didn't know this was going on. And I'm like, what's, what is wrong? He's like, I can't breathe. I can't sleep. I can't sit still. I can't, just naming all these things he can't do. And I'm like, what is going on? Before I tell you what's going on, let's just talk about Mike for a minute. And the things that he, the tremendous things that he's overcome. For one, you know, He's, a, he's a, a recovered addict who's been sober now for years, but he was um, at one point addicted to heroin. He was in a coma once for, for months and like lost his ability to speak and lost his ability to walk. I mean, he's been um, in and out of jail. He's overcome tremendous, tremendous odds. He's He's not allowed to ever work for a phone center again. That's a hard thing to do, by the way. <laughs> to never be allowed to work for a phone center, that's pretty impressive in a way, you know? He can never ever work for anyone that solicits, solicits anything on phones. He's on a specific list of like 10 people in the world <laughs> that cannot do that. He, his life is actually sort of like a, a movie one day. It could be a movie. He... He, like, escaped New York City as the mob was coming after him and his family. He was taken in by his grandparents where they changed his name. His name really wasn't even Mike. I can't tell you what his real name was because of the witness protection. I'm just kidding, that last part. But it wasn't Mike. His name was Christopher. Um, And I'm like, what do you mean your name was Christopher? He's like, well, they changed my name because all these people were after us. And he's like, I've seen people get kidnapped in front of me and... So we're sitting down at, at, at this lunch the other day, and I was like, tell me about your childhood, like, specifically. And, like, I've known this guy for years. I've walked closely with him. He lives with me. And literally, the other day, I found out, like, all this stuff that I didn't even know, that um, when he was 15, he was arrested with a, a half a pound of marijuana from school. He was selling, uh, and I knew he was arrested for doing drugs, but not half a pound at 15. He was an overachiever. Um, he, he's, I, I did get his permission on this, just FYI. Um, he, he was driving at the time. His, parent, his grandparents took care of him. He had like a $28,000 brand new car. And I, I'm like, why did you decide to sell, to sell drugs? He's like, yeah, I just did something to do. <laughs> it's like, okay. He, he gets busted, goes into prison at that age. Um, he'd go on to blow opportunity after opportunity with his grandparents. 
Um, they wanted to leave him a quarter of a million dollar house that his family wouldn't even let him have because they didn't think they could trust him with it, which they couldn't have. Um, he said that. Um, he gets uh, addicted to drugs. He almost dies on multiple occasions. Um, he survives all of this. He, he finally, when he was 14, or actually when he was 13, he um, gets introduced to um, his aunt, but then his other aunt pulls him aside and says, that's not your aunt, that's actually your mom. And it's like, he's like, yeah, I actually knew that. I can tell the resemblance. So, but that's kind of like his life. Like, was that like crazy insane? Um, he actually seen his step uh, or his half-brother and sister get, um, like literally, and when his mother showed up with the kids, he, they were playing in the front yard. He said a van came, van door opened up, and they got scooped up right in front of him and drove off because the, the actual father had came and taken the parents. But how crazy is that for a kid to see? So you look at like the coma, the heroin, the drugs, um, the, the multiple arrests, the multiple overdoses, all of that. Two weeks ago, he got made an underground elder. Well, The first TI guy to ever have that happen. That's pretty awesome. And all of that, yet he sits in front of me, pulling his hair out, saying, I'm having an anxiety attack. I can't sleep. I can't do this. All of that. I'm like, what in the world could be so bad? I'm trying to raise my teenage daughter. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I have no idea how to do this. She's a girl. I, I can't. He goes, George, six months ago, she was sitting on the couch with me watching Disney. <laughs> now I got to worry about her going out of the house with the wrong clothes on. He's like, I can't do this. He goes, I was staring at the wall last night with tunnel vision. I just was like, I couldn't move. Everything was happening around me. I just was like, I can't, I can't move. I'm stuck. I'm like, man, that's pretty rough. And he's right. It is rough. I, I'm like, well, um, I don't think you're supposed to know how to raise a daughter. I think, you know, you, you, that's kind of normal. And then he starts telling me more of the things that have been happening, and I was like, oh, that's not normal. <laughs> I got nothing for you. Talk to Jeremy Stevens. He's got girls. <laughs> I'm like, so I, I, I launch into my best, uh, my best pastoral loving, what you need to do is remember the cross. And I heard myself saying it, and I was like, I, 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 sound, I sound corny, but I meant it, but it's just like you need to look at the cross and just focus on the cross because when you were resurrected, man, you were resurrected with the Holy Spirit inside of you. And if you try to raise this daughter on your own, in your own flesh, you're not going to be able to do it. You have to let the Holy Spirit just be your strength. You got to let her, him be everything in this. Because as a, as a father, it's so hard when we try to 
well, let me just say this. You guys are probably a lot of your parents, but you're not ex-drug addicts that lost your kid and got him back. I did. Mike did. We know we carry this shame and this guilt from our dead life, and we carry it in to today. So when River wants something, when Alicia wants something from him, we both go back to the dead person that screwed up all those years ago. And we're like, they should probably have this because of what we did, right? But we can't do that. You can't, you know, it's like the angels in that tomb where they say, why do you look for the living among the dead? Your dead life, you can't look at that when you're trying to lead this new life. This, this life where you are brand new, risen from the dead, you can't, you can't let that dead person make decisions for you. That guilt, that shame, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So I'm like, man, you just gotta, you gotta look to the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, because what I do know about walking out a, a life of, of being risen is that it should reflect um, this life that everything you do is a chance. Every, every, everything you're trying to do should be out of your reach. Everything that you want to see happen should be beyond you. And parenting, in our case, is beyond us. You know, Jesus is this hope and and. You know, he's this strength that we need when we don't have any. I think for a controversial statement of the day, I'm going to make it. Too much of the church has taken Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and replaced it with Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. And I have all reverence for the Bible. But if you try to see how to live the resurrected life by reading about it, you won't be able to do it. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit that dwells in you. The Bible tells you about things and you can be in your study groups and you can be in your Bible studies and you can be around a bunch of other people that look like you, act like you, and talk like you and look at the scripture and that's great. But it's not gonna help you when it comes to ministry. It's not gonna help you when it comes to doing difficult things that are beyond you that only the Holy Spirit can do. Even reading the Bible, you can't do without the Holy Spirit. Even reading the Bible will not make any sense to you when you're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have to have that in you. That's the resurrected life. I'll call it the worship group before I keep talking forever. Because I'm on a roll now. So, um, i got a unique resurrection story for you. We have this guy, Mike McCoy, and um, Mike was this 50-some-year-old man who was very intimidating to be around. He was probably my height, but big, especially when he was working out. He was a really big dude, always looked kind of angry. Um, didn't just look the part. You could tell he had a life of being angry. You could tell he had a life of violence. Um, grew up in an orphanage as well. He uh, had bounced around his whole life 
from uh, situation to situation. He said he once walked out on a wife and child to get a pack of cigarettes and never went back. And he didn't. He, he just, I'm like, why? He's like, I don't know. I just, I just did. Just walked out one day. He said that when he was a kid, one of the only memories he, he remembered was he seen his mother get murdered in front of him. And he lived a life of hate for anyone um, that he didn't know, anyone that was of another color. He knew he came from an extremely, extremely racist place. Um, he blamed the death of his mother on people of color. But he knew this. And when he came into TI, he actually, he tried to come into TI once and he had all these medical conditions and we couldn't really take care of him because he had no doctors or anything. So he went into the Salvation Army and they got him on all kinds of medication. He, was on, he had diabetes and things like that. And a year later, he's like, I, I want to come into TI because I spent two weeks with you guys and I just really, I, I just, he waited with us for two weeks to get into the Salvation Army. That's what I mean by that. He's like, I want to come back to you because I, I, I need that Jesus thing. I need, I see how you guys are and I need, to, I need that Jesus thing. And so he came in and um, he, we were going through uh, a deliverance meeting one night where we were praying for deliverance from everyone for everyone and um, the guy who was leading it was praying for Mike and man we went through deliverance on him for three hours I think it was, it was this really long thing and um, I can say in hindsight like we didn't think he was delivered that night. We didn't think a lot had changed, but it really did because it was in that meeting that night that he said, I want to reconcile with black men. And we're talking about a guy that was intimidating, extremely violent, hated the world. He had some really big, deep baggage. And I was like uncomfortable in this scenario. And so... Watson is one of our leaders, of course, and, and I'm like, Watson, do you want to do this or not? Because I, I, I don't know what this guy's going to do. And Watson's like, of course I do. Yeah, of course. And Watson and Mike set out on this journey to understand white, black, extreme hate, love, Jesus, all of these things. In all my years, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed. To see this guy, to know his story, wake up to love men of color, to... I'm being kind when I don't tell you the details of everything that happened. Definitely not a morning story. 
but he came to love Watson and to see them grow together was really inspiration. But you see, it was kind of overshadowed at the time because he had this diabetes that um, really um, had taken over his body and he would go to see a doctor and literally the doctor would tell him, at one point his doctor told him, you're going to die within six months. If not, you're at least gonna go blind within six months. You might make it two years. That's what the doctor told him. He came back and I remember him telling me this and I remember just being like, I don't don't even know what to say, right? What do you say to somebody? He's like, yeah, he says I'm gonna go blind and die. And we've prayed, guys. Believe me, we prayed, we prayed. We kept praying and we never stopped praying. So he would try to maintain his, his diabetes as best as he could, but it would always get screwed up. And he was a really good carpenter at one point in his life, but his eyesight had gotten so bad. I mean, I remember one time I had him work at my house and I told him like where to put the cabinet. And it's not that he got the cabinet like crooked or something. He put it on the wrong wall. And it was just like, okay, that's, uh, that wall work. I mean, he was, everything was kind of losing. And so they had him on, he had to do all these different diabetes medications. And if he didn't, it didn't work. And he just kind of gave up at the end. And so we tried to get him jobs. Bless Josh Hop's heart, man. He, Josh had him over there working on a fence. And like three times he went into a diabetic seizure and Josh had to call doctors. And I mean, it's scary if you're the guy, the homeowner, and you got a guy having a seizure. Like, I don't know if I want this guy on my property or whatever. And he just kept losing job after job. And, 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 you know, we try to get him to be on his medication and try to get him, you know, to not do this. But it just became so hard towards the end. And when he'd have these seizures, he would get really weird. I mean, like, I don't know if you've ever been around people that go through this with diabetes. He wouldn't just have a seizure. He'd get, like, really strange first. One time he, like yanked a tooth out of his head just for the sake of it. And one of my guys was driving and he goes, hey, I got my tooth in my hand. And he's like, George, I was like, what? What do you mean you have your tooth in your hand? <laughs> oh my God, it was, it was intense. Um, but you know, through it all, Mike, um, over two years that he was with us at the end, he like would go through this phase of uh, I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. And I, Mike, why do you think that? Well, because I've been a bad person. I've been a bad person. Yeah, but you're a good person now. So are you, Mike. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm just scared. And so we'd kind of go through this, and we'd pray together, and we'd walk through this and everything, and finally get him feeling better. And he'd, and he'd kind of, he'd, he'd, he'd go through these places where he's like, I just want to make sure I'm doing enough. And we'd all be, you believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You believe he, he was, he was buried and he would go through the whole thing. He's like, I believe all that. I'm like, Mike, you're good. He's like, man, he's like, I'm just afraid I'm going to relapse. I don't want to relapse. I don't want to die relapse. And I'm like, you're not going to relapse. And you know, this was the conversations when we, that we would have. Um, and as it got towards the end, you know, he became more at peace with things. He became more um, comfortable with the Lord. And a couple months ago or whatever, I get a call from my other friend, Mike, 
and he's like, I just found Mike dead in the house. What do I do? And I'm like, I'll be right there. So I got to the house, and Mike was dead in the hallway there, and the other Mike's like, and, I, and I'm like, okay. And so we sat in there. At some point, Anthony showed up too, but um, so we're there. And I remember just sitting at the table, right? Now, number one, you find a dead person, you'd think I would pray for the body, right? You'd try to raise the dead. You don't have a lot of those opportunities to try to raise the dead. I got one, you know, but I didn't. And it's not that I didn't do it because I don't think that God raises the dead. I totally believe that God raises the dead, and I hope one day to be one of the people that sees that. But in this case, at this time, God had already raised him from the dead. He had already been raised from that old man. He had already been born again as a new believer in Christ. He'd already been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he had already done all that he had to do. It was time for the Lord to say, Come in, my son, whom I am well pleased. And I remember sitting at that table, um, looking at the body, looking at Anthony freaking out and Mike kind of being like, ah, and, and I remember looking down and his Bible was open where he would sit. And, uh, and I just smiled. And I'm like, he made it, man. He did it. He didn't relapse. He died loving the Lord, reading his scripture. He made it. And I didn't think about this till I was preparing here, but he knew that if he had too much fruit, it would, it would end his life. But he loved it, you know. He died drinking a strawberry smoothie. You got to wonder if, like, he didn't just drink that smoothie, knowing it was time. I don't know who you all work with, if you work with anybody, but if you're in this Jesus thing, someday you will work with someone. And let me tell you that your stories of um, whomever you're working with, with, you'll see people be risen and you will see people die. And I, my prayer for you is that one day you can see those that die and say that they were already risen once. I witnessed it. I played a part in that. To understand ministry and life in its totality is to understand that there is ups and there's downs and there's everything in between. Our job is to just know Jesus, to love Jesus, to recognize the power of Jesus that's in us, to share that with others. He has risen, but he will continue to rise. He will continue to rise. Just bow your heads for a moment, and I want you to think about your life right now. Are you walking in a way that people can look at you and say, Something is different about them. 
They know the resurrection, and I want that. Maybe they don't use those terms because they don't understand them, but they just see that you're alive in a way that they're not, and they want that. Pray and ask God to reveal what it means to be risen to you. was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. When you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, Drink it in my name. I can't help but wonder if Joseph really did see Isaiah 53 remember that it was his body that was pierced for us, his body beaten for us. Elders, when you're ready, 